this is Dr. Dina Dye with Returning to Eden, and we have a special program today. Jeff Morton, my co-host, is hiding in the shadows. He's got work to do, and I have a very, very special friend on with me. Uh, I'd like you all to, if you're at home, give a rounding applause for Jane Bakewell. Say hi, Jane. Shalom, shalom, and hi. <laughs> so I know some of you know because uh, I've shared a little bit about Jane, and uh, some of my friends listening are aware of her plight last year with the uh, hurricane in Tortola. And you know that Jane and I have been friends for approximately 43 years. And Jane and I met during the Did you Guatemala... Did them? We, we were kindergarten age. You don't want to give off oh. anything more than... Oh, yeah, okay. Yes, we were in kindergarten 43 years ago. <laughs> Just, uh, yeah. Jane and I met during the Guatemalan earthquake in 1976. Um, and I'm not, we're not going to share that story, but uh, just a little backdrop. But that's where we first met during that earthquake. And we eventually made our way up to Mexico, and that was another uh, dramatic <laughs> experience. Uh, from Mexico, we went to, uh, we both ended up, well, Jane was living in San Francisco, but I ended up in San Francisco where Jane was. We're still friends. And from there, we decided we needed to go find ourselves. So we ended up together moving out to Taos, New Mexico. So uh, again, we, we have a long bond here. Uh, Jane, you want to share anything in that little experience from Guatemala to Taos? Just maybe a couple of points there. Uh, just that the Guatemala experience, I, I don't know if anyone real, realizes what a severe earthquake that was, but um, it just it destroyed many of the villages, the outlying villages that were just little uh, hovel-type homes um, where many of the uh, weavers, um, le lived and so a lot of weaving styles you know which Guatemala is known for their textiles were totally wiped out because the master weavers had died but it was a it was a very difficult thing for us I think I remember that Diana and I were both pulled about staying in the country and trying to help and leaving but really with being two people who need to be fed and housed we were not going to be much help staying so we were really urged more to to move on but anyway, that was sort of some of my thoughts from there. Yeah, no, and I mean, it was probably for me one of the most traumatic moments. I mean, you're not often in something so deadly. Most people never experience those kinds of natural disasters. And your point about the weaving is so interesting, too. Uh, the, you know, the, the country obviously has come back from 1976. But I managed to purchase a couple of the weavings at that time from the, the various towns around Lake Atitlan, which are mm -hmm. my prized possessions because they no longer, they don't do those weavings anymore. These are, you know, once the, after the earthquakes, as you mentioned, these weavers died and they hadn't yeah. passed on the weaving. Um, yeah. Our time in Mexico, oh, go ahead. Yeah, Chichi Castanango, some of those right. little villages in the outskirts, yes, where the master weavers were, correct. Yeah, so we, we recognized that we were pretty much a burden on the country, and so we made our escape, and uh, that wasn't easy either. Uh, our time in San Francisco was, uh, was quite interesting. Uh, Jane was already living there. You may want to 
talk a few minutes about your, I mean, when, especially when we think about where San Francisco is now, and then when we think about what it was like back at, at that time when we were living there. You want to share a little bit? Um, I'd rather move on to New Mexico. <laughs> <laughs> All right, folks, we aren't going to go there, but we did move to South New Mexico. I, I had my full seven years in San Francisco, and really I was bonded to that city. The, the, the thing I will say the most about San Francisco is that truly really, it's one of the great cities for eating. And even when I moved to New Mexico, I'm a real gourmand. I love food. And I used to go back to San Francisco every year just to eat at three or four of my top restaurants. So it is a great a great city with a lot of uh, ethnic diversity and wonderful food, but there's it's many layered. There's lots of things going on in San Francisco. So I'll leave Absolutely. it at the culinary. Okay. Oh yeah, while I'm there, as a matter of fact, a little thing was that uh, that's where because I had that taste for food and also was uh, beginning in my writing career. I ended up in Mexico when we made our move. One of my jobs eventually was working for the Santa Fe Reporter as a food critic for their um, A Taste of Santa Fe was my column. And, of course, my surname is Jane Bakewell. And in those days, people took bylines. You know, you took a name, an author's name. So everybody down in the printing part of the, the department of the newspaper thought I had made up the name. <laughs> a Taste of Santa Fe by Jane Bakewell. I tried to convince them, no, this is really my given name. <laughs> Not everyone was sure I made it up. Uh, I, and I remember those, I mean, those were some really important years because the, 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 our time in Taos, uh, you had gone off to Hawaii uh, to kind of find yourself. You met with the folks at YWAM. You ended up coming, we were actually living together at the time, and you came back a believer, and then you mm -hmm. set about convincing me that yes. Yeshua, Jesus, was... You were my main disciple. <laughs> yeah, I was the first. Uh, let me just tell, uh, Jane is calling in from Israel, so if there's any little hiccups, uh, and we want to get to the, what's going on in Israel, I just want to give you a bit of a backdrop, but uh, if, if her sound goes out a little bit here and there, it's just because, you know, she's overseas. So what, uh, what was interesting about our time in Taos, uh, I, and we've talked about this in the past, I felt that the father had sent me basically once I became a believer to the non-Jews to share with them the importance of learning their their the you know the roots if you will the understanding the Hebraic nature, but Jane was sent off to the Jews. Her ministry was to the Jews, and mine was to the non-Jews, even though I was Jewish and she wasn't Jewish. And uh, you know, it's interesting, Dina. Let me put something in here. Paul, the Hebrew of the Hebrews, where was he sent? He was sent to the goyim, to the nations. Yeah, yeah you know? exactly. Peter, you know, the unlearned fisherman. You know, I mean, it's so interesting how God uses that, you know. I mean, there you were, my Jewish friend. And I can remember when you were in a nominal church and I was going, Tina, you're Jewish. What are you doing? You should be in a Messianic congregation. And I was definitely well into my Jewish roots at that point. And even during the time that I was in New Mexico, was my first, in 1979, was my first trip to Israel. And that was when I was still living in Taos. And uh, that changed my life. That yeah. first trip to Israel in 79 completely changed my life and changed the direction and the call on my life. So uh, that was definitely a God thing. Yeah, absolutely. And a point 
just like the book that Derek Prince wrote, I also had an appointment in Jerusalem. Yeah, and so it's very, it was very, we've, we've always thought that was very interesting, that the Father worked in our lives uh, that way. So Jane went off to school, and she ended up at Beth Messiah, the congregation out in Maryland. And she was uh, early 80s, and uh, I, so we want to share a little bit here, because Jane's worship leader was Paul Wilbur. <laughs> you might not know that he was once a small fry, you know, congregation, but uh, you want to share that period of time? Yeah. Um, yes, I came down from, I went to uh, two years of Bible school uh, up in New York at a division for uh, Christ for the Nations. Uh, Christ for the Nations had a, a biblical institute for several years up in Long Island. And so I ended up at that Bible school and got an associate in practical theology degree. But while I was up there, one of the speakers that came through, we had a lot of uh, speakers from all over the, the whole uh, splay of uh, Christian denominations and, you know, orientations. So Sid Roth from Messianic Vision came up at one time, and he shared, and I thought, wow, you know, this I would like to be a part of this at some time, what's going on. He was also part of this Beth Messiah congregation, and that's what led me down there. And also one of my classmates, two of my, one of my classmates there was a man by the name of Ron Cantor, and Ron Cantor now has a thriving ministry in Israel called the Messiah's Mandate. And uh, he married an Israeli woman and lives here. And one of my teachers, many of your listeners may know his book, was Dr. Michael Brown. And Dr. Michael Brown has probably got 40 or 50 books out on. He's probably the best author on sort of Jewish apologetics that anyone I know to date. Uh, He has a doctorate in Near Eastern languages and literatures from NYU. I mean, he's really authoritative, a, a man that was raised up to date the rabbi, I mean to date, to debate the rabbis. So it was very amazing that those connections happened. So when I got down to Maryland, my first job actually was an interview with Sid, and I was hired on at Messianic Vision as their communications director. So, but anyway, in that congregation at the time, Paul Wilbur is, had just formed the group Israel's Hope, and that was Paul Wilbur with Renee Block and, uh, and Mark. And uh, it was just an amazing group. And I got so spoiled. You have to realize this is my first major congregation. <laughs> and I thought it was usual that you'd have a singer like Paul Wilbur who studied in Italy as a cantor. You know, I mean, <laughs> he has a voice that's unbelievable, uh, you know, it, as an as a incredible singer and songwriter. And together with Mark Chapinski and Renee Block, they wrote some of the music at the time <clears throat> that I was there that w- it was the very first profound music in the Messianic movement along with Lamb. Lamb was another group at about the same time putting out music, but uh, Israel's Hope was very big. And uh, Paul Wilbur and I have stayed in touch today. Well, I think it's, uh, you know, that period people don't realize just how important it was. Uh, I'm going to say, what, about 83, 84? Is that when you were there? Yeah, 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 those years. I was about seven years, so yeah, okay. down that time. Early 80s, and so um, this is all just springing up, and you can see the, the major connections in the Messianic movement with Paul Wilbur and your relationship with Michael Brown and Sid Roth and, and countless others. This is a very significant time, I think, in the movement, 
and uh, Jane was right there in the heart of it, in the sort of the uh, percolating of this experience. Now I'm back in Let's, the house. Go ahead. Add something in here, Dina. Um, one of the things that people, you know, when they talk about the different epochs of the church, the, uh, the ecclesia, you know, that there was this movement and that movement and the revivalist movement, and then there was the faith movement and there was this movement, you know, they forget that there was a significant movement, and that was the movement, the Messianic Jewish movement. There was a period of about um, 10 years when most of the major, major leaders that are now leaders in the Messianic Jewish movement all got saved at the same time. It was sort of after the Jesus movement and then in sort of the very late 60s, early 70s, from the, I would say mid-70s on is when a lot of Jews were getting saved. I don't know why. It was a, it was a real act of the Holy Spirit, of the Ruach HaKodesh. There was just a movement on Jewish hearts. A lot of... Uh, my mentors and friends were living out in New Mexico in yurts and out in, you know, communities. And they all got saved at this time. And all of most of my Jewish friends at that time had a call to go back to Israel and eventually made Aliyah. So the friends that I'm seeing now are friends I know, knew from like 30 years ago back in New Mexico and other times who had that call at that time during the movement, that was a big, big move of God to bring Jewish believers into the fold. And yes, I mean, and that's when I became a believer. I was, you know, together we were in Taos at the same time. And part of all of that is me becoming a believer. And at the yeah, same time, we have, uh, you know, Andrew Shishkoff uh, back 30 years ago, who is now in Haifa. Well, I, I think he's passed the baton on, but huge congregation. You want to talk about him for just a sec? Yeah, um, Andrew now goes by his Hebrew name, Eitan. Eitan and Connie has kept her name, Connie Shishkoff. They're close, close friends. I consider him kind of my spiritual Abba, father, you know, mentor uh, from my early years. And uh, he has had an amazing work in Haifa. He has a ministry called Tents of uh, Mercy. And he sprung from that one congregation, five other Messianic congregations, one a Russian-speaking one, um, and one who the leader is a was a former Orthodox, the son of an Orthodox rabbi who's leading another congregation. Um, they've got one in the hills of Nazareth, uh, Nazareth Elite, uh, five different congregations, plus, uh, uh, you know, um, his congregation, Tents of Mercy. And now he's passed that on to his son-in-law, his daughter. He had a daughter and son when he moved from, is from America. And then in, while in Israel, they had two more children, another daughter and a son. But the eldest daughter married an Ethiopian Jewish immigrant. Um, named Avi Shalom. And so Avi Shalom has now taken the banner and uh, moved on in this congregation. But look at how God works, you know, amazing. I mean, Eitan was a hippie at the time of Ram Dass and, you know, yeah. all of that stuff going on. And here he was a major leader set in Israel and his son-in-law is now uh, from an Ethiopian Jew and, 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 you know, a believer, obviously Ethiopian Jewish believer, but leading the congregation, and um, Hebrew, the, the congregation is called Ohale Rachamin, but he had a vision years before that, you know, when he was saved in here, he had a vision of tents, 
and he saw them in the desert, and he saw him feeding people and clothing people, and it's a place of mercy, you know, bringing people in, and that's really what they do. They have a warehouse that they, you know, uh, clothe, and they they help people and pregnant women. They have outreaches for all kinds of. They have a special department for the Russian Jews, and they've just done an amazing with with you know gift baskets and uh, helping people. So. And it's not been an easy work in that area of Haifa. Uh, they were bombed at least once. Their building was bombed, and they had to rebuild. But God has been faithful. Yeah, I mean, a fantastic work. And think of, you know, Aton. I mean, that was all birthed out of the northern New Mexico hippie thing. And uh, yeah. we had other friends yeah. move to different parts. And, you know, and, and then you being very involved, again, with Beth Messiah, with these movers and shakers and leaders, now, you know, 30 years later, I want to talk a little bit. Uh, so you got a degree in communications and you've gone on to do work in that area as a journalist and, and uh, you know, various other things. You want to talk about that for just a minute? Because that, that's really important. And I think reason, one of the reasons God has you in Israel so often now is to build those bridges and write about what's going on. Um, yeah, <clears throat> uh, writing has always been a passion of mine, and I think I just, over the years, have been able, luckily, not luckily, but through work and, you know, pushing my way in, in the direction that I want to go in, um, been able to <clears throat> use my writing, uh, first of all, as a freelance writer as a, to make a living on, and I I live, uh, we're talking about me being in Israel, but my where I've lived for 20 years after leaving the States has been in the British Virgin Islands on an island called Tortola, which means turtle dove. Interestingly enough, here I am in, you know, the Israel where the dove is the, the icon for peace in Jerusalem. But anyway, I, in Tortola, uh, I've been, I freelanced more as a writer of culture and, uh, culture and art and food and sort of the, the eye selling the Caribbean, this particular Caribbean island uh, over others. You have many choices. Why would you come to Tortola versus Jamaica or anywhere else you could go, you know, as a Caribbean chain? But through that and also in the background, always being more of a interested in, uh, you know, interesting stories. I, I think I'm very human interest oriented. So I like people's stories. I'm a as, as uh, Diana knows well, when we traveled in Mexico and Guatemala, I'm the kind of person that would go up to the shopkeeper and ask them all these questions and find out everything about their family and what was going on. And because I'm inquisitive that way, I end up uh, hearing a lot of stories that are very interesting. Anyway, one of the things that I wanted to say is one that when I first, first came, I'm going back a little bit, but my first trip to Israel in 1979 I can remember going into a small shop and it was a little, it was an older Jewish shopkeeper, Orthodox, who had beard and, you know, the black hat. And I was looking around the things that he had and, and he spoke English as well. So we spoke a little bit and I told him how much I loved the country and being there. And he looked at me and he said, you're not like the other tourists. And I said, what do you mean? And he said, I see something different in you. And I sort of questioned, what do you mean? And he said, there's something about you. Your very chemistry, how did he put it? Your chemia, your chemistry connects with the chemistry of this place. Like you will be back again and not as a tourist. I mean, that was in 1979 that wow. you have it. He almost 
like you have a destiny here. And this is a shopkeeper that's just meeting me for the first time. And I just felt that was sort of an amazing, you know, prophetic word. Yeah, from, uh, for sure. Absolutely. No, that's in, in, my, in my writing, as I have over the years and written for different publications, magazines and newspapers and various publications, I've, I've kept myself, you know, sort of interested in, in what's going on and tried to stay abreast. And now that I'm in Israel, I've got a membership with the what's called the Jerusalem Press Club. And it's not, uh, you don't get in easily. I mean, to be a member of the press club, you have to show printed articles. And then you also have to show your connection with Israel. You can't just say, you know, of course, I'm a feature writer out of the Caribbean. But one of the organizations that I write for online is a group called the Caribbean Israel Leadership Coalition. And this is a coalition of West Indian Caribbean islands that are connecting with Israel in terms of entrepreneurship and learning about agriculture and farming and water and, you know, all the kinds of gifts that Israel has as an advanced, as we call it now, the startup nation because of the technology. But the startup nation has much to give the world. So I think it's amazing that I've been able to make this bridge now between the Caribbean and Israel in terms of, and many of these leaders in this Caribbean-Israel coalition are believers, are born-again believers, but they're also in the marketplace. They're called in the marketplace. So there is a, there's something going on that I'm living in the islands, and yet I'm connected again uh, through my writing to be able to present and interview people here for this online site and, and keep them uh, in the, kind of in the know with the news that I get from here. It is interesting how the Father just uses your one's life experience to, to build bridges and join communities and network. You know, I don't have any affinity with anybody in the Caribbean, and yet because of your, uh, your time living down there in Tortola and building relationships there and then making the connections in Israel, I mean, it's just fascinating if we just would allow the Father, you know, to build the bridges wherever they can be built based on the experiences that we have. So now pretty much you're back and forth between Tortola and Israel. You try to be in each place three months at a time if it works out. And so you've just gone back and you're in Jerusalem now. How, how long are you there till? I'm here for three months. And really the Lord put in my heart probably about Six years ago, I, I used to come every year for a few weeks or it'd be a little longer than that, but I really got a strong call from the Lord about six years ago that I was to be here for what are called the journeying feasts. I mean, you know, the three great feasts were called to to come up to Jerusalem. Uh, I really felt the Lord said, you know, in the last days, of course, all the tribes and nations will come up to Zion. And there will be a great worship time, and there will be the feast that we, you know, celebrate, you know, Pesach, Sukkot, and Shavuot. So two of the feasts are in the spring and one in the fall. So those are the three feasts when the, the men from the tribes of Israel were called to have to be in Jerusalem for that time. So, um, you know, that was a, a great time of coming up, and I felt those were the seasons I was to be here. So I usually come in March, and that's generally before Pesach, and stay several months, sometimes three, into May to cover Shavuot, because you have to count the 50 days, you have to count the Omer to make sure I get in the two holidays. And then I come again in the fall for Sukkot, and sometimes stay as long as Hanukkah. But 
Um, God has been gracious. And Dina, you and I were just talking about this is just kind of a miracle in terms of an apartment. Each time I came for years, I had to find a new place to stay. But this last two years ago, I found my home. (laughs) I could call it my little uh, sanctuary in the heart of Jerusalem. And I live in a little village called Yamin Moshe. And it's the oldest city outside the old walls of Jerusalem. From where I am, I can look out over the walls and where the Jaffa Gate is in the beginning of the old city. So I'm very centrally located. But this is an artist community. It's now become kind of a ritzy, high-end community. In the old days, it was for struggling artists. And then the what they call Arnona, the house taxes got to be too much. So many of the artists had to leave. But it's still considered an art community. So I found this adorable little one-bedroom apartment, which is ideal for me. And I really prayed, and friends of mine who are believers prayed with me that God would give me favor. I prayed like that Abraham, like the favor of Abraham, like a shield would be around me. And I approached this landlord, and I said, listen, I'm only here two to three months at a time, but I don't want to give up the apartment. How can I work with you to keep this? And he said he could sign a year lease with several people in line for this place. I mean, it's really a coveted place in Jerusalem. And he said, I don't know why, but I just like you. And I thought, I know why. (laughs) (laughs) Favor, you know, he elevates. He sets us before kings. This has nothing to do with us. It has to do with him. So anyway, uh, he said, I'll tell you what, I'll let you, um, you know, and this was just with a handshake, nothing written. I'll let you go ahead and rent the place out on your own while you're gone. The only deal is you have to make sure that rent is covered for the months you're not here. And that was kind of a risk for me because I certainly can't afford uh, to be paying rent in two places. So not Jerusalem either. Exactly. So, uh, but God has been faithful and uh, this last, a series of months, and I won't go into all the details, but some of the people that got the place were a Chinese pastor and his wife from the underground church in China who were coming to Jerusalem for some sort of sabbatical. They rented my place for three months. Wow. I had a series of nothing but believers in here. And, you know, people ask me many times, Jane, why do you keep coming to Israel? You could go anywhere. Why do you keep going back to Jerusalem? And I always say, why would you need to travel in the world when the whole world comes to Jerusalem? I walk down the street, and I can hear Chinese, Italian, French, Arabic, uh, Spanish, you you name it, Uh, you know, Hebrew, every other language. This is where the world is called. It's It's the center. Amen. Well, we, uh, so, you know, now you've all got kind of the backdrop of our relationship and then Jane, you know, spending time in, in the land. And so I want to shift gears a little bit and start talking to get the pulse of what's going on in Jerusalem because we've got the elections coming up. And of course, we're reading over here criminal charges, you know, against Netanyahu. We, we know the left is behind this. I'm sure Obama's got his fingerprints somewhere to try to take uh, Netanyahu out. And then, you know, just a lot. So if you can start sharing with us sort of the political realities uh, from what you're hearing and seeing on the ground right now. Okay, well, I think for many of us, uh, you know, around the world who are great supporters of Israel, we've, we've loved the work that Bibi Netanyahu has done. He is the ultimate statesman. 
There's just no question about it. He has put Israel from, from a small isolationist country networked around the world. In the last few years, he's made trips to Africa and made with he and the uh, president, president of India have become close friends. He, he's the ultimate statesman. And the fact that he's a Sabra, meaning he was born in Israel. In fact, an interesting fact is, um, of course, everyone knows that the state of Israel was, you know, began May 14, 1948. And in October of 1949 was when Bibi Netanyahu was born. So he's the first native-born Israeli prime minister of Israel. You have to realize Ben-Gurion was born in Poland. The other thing Netanyahu and Ben-Gurion have uh, in common is that Ben-Gurion was the longest-serving prime minister Israel ever had. He had served 15 years. And right now Netanyahu is almost reaching his 15th year. It's it's uncanny, Dina, it how closely their parallel is. I looked this up just today, and I was shocked. I didn't know this. But Ben-Gurion was born in October 16th, um, 1886, and um, Netanyahu was born in October 21st, you know, 1949. I mean, I, I know that may not sound like much, but both of them October birthdays, and also so close, only a week apart. And both of them, the longest-serving prime minister, both of them served terms and then took a few years off and then came back and served a longer term. Ben-Gurion served four or five years, was out for two years, and then came back for his long span of 10 years. Same thing with Netanyahu, who served three or four years, then stepped out again, was a foreign minister. I think it was in something with economy. Then he came back in. He has been serving nonstop since 2009. So you have to think about this. There's a generation that has grown up with Netanyahu as their as their president, as their premier. You know, we don't have that. The U.S. is eight years, it's term limits, and I do think there's something wise about that. Even <laughs> when I read quotes from Ben-Gurion, who after 15 years said it was time for him to step down, that no man should, you know, have a long-term, you know, that long-term effect on right. the country. But anyway, so, yes, there's a lot of contention, and there. As you know, it's very parallel with the U.S., just like all the investigations on Trump by the far left, all the investigations here by the far left on, you know, that are anti-Netanyahu, because he represents the Likud party, which is right, um, the right wing of the party, are against him. But, Deanna, this time it's a little different, because this time it's not only corruption, fraud, there's some very serious charges, and I think the most serious has to do with um, his involvement with news media and bribes with news media to paint a more favorable picture of him. And that carries, you know, and there, there's some, he may not be able to get out of that particular one. It's a fairly uh, charge that, that has some weight to it. Now, what believers feel here is that this, the, the only chance of a government coming against him right now is the new party that's formed. I hope I can make this easy. It's called the Blue and White Party. And it's generally made up of two key players, a guy by the name of Benny Gantz, who's an IDF general major here. If you think back on the U.S., he's like an Eisenhower. You know, and you know how governments love to mm-hmm. have a star general as a leader. You know, that's a big thing. Yeah. The problem is he's very Israeli. His English isn't as good. You have to realize Netanyahu was uh, born in Israel, but he was schooled. He went to MIT. He's very well-spoken in English. 
And the other is a man by the name of Yair Lapid. And Lapid uh, was kind of a movie star. He's had a television show, and he's kind of all around there. But both of these two had their own individual parties because they both wanted to be prime minister. They realized that here you have to make a coalition. Um, Let's try to make it easy. The Knesset has 120 seats. And Dina, you'll find this interesting because you're a scholar in this, and I know you've written about this. But Ha Knesset means the assembly, just like Ha Knesset Gadol, the great assembly. Of course, Mm -hmm. you've written about the 120 sages and writers. So the Knesset here, in order to be able to have a majority, you have to have at least 61 seats. You have to have more over the half, okay? So right now, um, Likud is, 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 has probably about in the high 30s, 30, 31 seats. But this new party, the two uh, actors came to two politicians came together, realizing they couldn't do it on their own. They put their parties together and named it Blue and White. And because neither of them wanted to give up the chance of being premier, they agreed that one would take it for half of the term and the other would take it for the other. So one would serve 2.5 years and the other 2.5. That's the deal they worked out. Yeah. Okay, so they're, they, they're really in the running for this. I mean, this is a very contentious election. And People are trying to understand where they're coming from. Now, they are, far, they are to the left of Netanyahu, but they're not far left. You know, they're not the Peace Now movement and all of that. Mm-hmm. One of the little scenes they have going on here, and I know this, you know how Trump has these little sayings where he puts his opponents down by giving them nicknames or names that, yeah. you know, you can't forget. You know? yeah. And Bibi started this thing. I don't know if this was him or the Likud party. But they're saying CB or CB. Okay. Uh-huh. Everyone knows CB is a, net, is a nickname for Bibi Netanyahu. Well, TB is the name of Ahmed TB. He's one of the MKs of the Arab Party. So the Arab Party is about 15% of the Knesset. So what they're saying is that this enable for this blue and white party to have their majority, they're going to have to add the Arab contingent to their, you know, as they cobble this this unity government, have to add this party in. So, you know, Bibi's trying to frighten people by saying, do you want the party that's ruling to have the Arab voice, meaning a predominant, some of these Arab MKs hate Israel. I mean, this is the freedom of Israel. You can be a sister there and, and, you know, put down the country. So he, little thing is to frighten people, but just to make it brief, the elections are April 9th. We're all praying. No one knows what's going to happen. I, I, my personal feeling is I just don't feel Bibi's quite done yet. You know, I, I just feel maybe another four years. But I have to leave that up to the Holy Spirit and to the Lord. I and mean, the Lord knows what the time is. I'm a little distrustful of this coalition government, this one that could oppose him. I don't know. The main thing that my Israeli friends here, our believer friends, are concerned about is that Jerusalem does not get divided, and this could be something they might embrace, and the other would be giving up the Golan Heights. We cannot give right. up the Golan Heights. Right. No, absolutely not. So, uh, I, you know, it sounds like things are really heating up, and uh, I, I can imagine, you know, just like Trump is dealing with, I mean, the, the fake news and the media and the left-wing activists just, you know, Netanyahu and Trump 
have a lot in common in that regard. Uh, in, in terms of uh, you know the, the, the stuff that's percolating with the Trump administration and maybe pressuring um, you know the Judea Samaria to give up land, etc. Uh, what what are they saying over there about this possible peace deal? Well, what they're saying is nobody knows. You know that, that uh, Trump's son-in-law Kushner has been the architect primarily of this. You know, if you know how Trump is, he he never scales back on words. The deal of the century. Right. But anyway, the deal. Um, the concern is that oh, he did move the embassy to Jerusalem. He has said before that he believes Jerusalem is the capital of Israel. There's just some some fear that you know the 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 Arabs will not let go of East Jerusalem and holding on to it as their capital, even though their seat of government is in Ramallah. That's always been an Arab area and where their main city is, but they just want to keep the thorn in the side, you know, it's this contentious, they were never interested before, but now all of a sudden, they, the bottom line is they have to have East Jerusalem as their capital, and that's why they have refused to come to the bargaining table so many times, because they say that is their, you know, end all, they have to have East Jerusalem. You couldn't do that, people don't understand, if you say East Jerusalem, do you know what that includes? The Western Wall. <laughs> right, right. You get that and understand the geography here. But um, yes, you're going to put the Western Wall under Arab control? I don't think so. If people have to go back in history and realize that uh, before 1967, from 48 to 67, um, the Jews were not allowed to pray at their holiest site, the Western Wall, the, what we call the Kotel. I mean, that would be like keeping Christians from the Holy Sepulchre, Arabs from the mosque. You know, uh, you know, this is just crazy. But their Jordanian control kept them out. And that's why that great liberation in 67, which we celebrated just this past year, the anniversary of, the liberation of um, Jerusalem, you know, so that Jews could return and come back to their holiest site and be there. And Israelis always, no matter where they have, um, you know, especially been in control here, are, are very sensitive to other people's key spots. And they've been very sensitive. You ask Christians here. Christians here get a lot of liberty with the government. And, and as do Arabs, you know, in terms of their holy sites, um, you know, various things. There's, there's a great sense of uh, democracy that way. There's a great moral ethic with Judaism that, that upholds that. And people don't seem to understand that. When, Ju when Jerusalem was under Muslim control, under, era, uh, under uh, Jordanian control, do you think that was fair, knowing that that was their holy site, not letting Jews even watch the prayer of their walls? God forbid this city ever go back to anyone else but the Israelis, and it won't. Well, the Lord won't allow it. Yeah, so it'll be, it's going to be everyone sort of waiting with bated breath to see what this plan is that's going to come out of the United States. And you know, the question on how much pressure the U.S. is going to put on Israel because the U.S., you know, has allowed Jerusalem to have the embassy. Um, there's, you know, who knows? There's, it seems to me a lot of things are probably going on behind the scenes that we don't obviously ha have any knowledge to, and it'll be interesting to see. I just pray, and, and we should all be, that, you know, the U.S. doesn't put undue pressure on Israel forcing her to do something that will, you know, uh, be an issue for her security, really. I mean, I think the main thing, and Netanyahu says this again and again, and it's so true, 
Um, when I, in the early days of my coming back and forth here, and I came many times, and then in my uh, media time, I had a, a company one called, at one time called Google Productions. And what I did was I did videos of Christian tour booths. So I would be here, and then when the tour booth came, I would join them as their videographer. And I would um, video the highlights and then put it together in a video and then sell that back to the group. So I did that for quite a while for groups of people that came. But one of the things we used to always tell people is they say, well, is it, is it, is it scary to come to Israel? Are you worried for your safety? And, and I used to always say, no. You have to realize in Israel, our borders are safe. Our borders are what we fight for, but our cities are safe. And I said, in the U.S., it's the opposite. You go to the U.S. and your borders are safe, you know, at this point, maybe we can question Mexico, but Mexico and Canada are not a threat to us militarily. But our cities, I mean, come on, Chicago, New York, Miami, you want to tell me where the highest murder rate is? Uh, our cities are very dangerous. I walk around you know, at night in Jerusalem at 11, at 11.30, myself, a single woman, walking around, and I don't worry about anyone harassing me. Uh, coming up to me, troubling me, um, I feel totally safe out there. And that's because the IDF is all around at every place, at every juncture, and, um, and because this is under the control of Israel. No, I mean, that's, uh, yeah, none of, you know, I live in New Mexico. You could never walk around Albuquerque at night. You wouldn't last five minutes. So uh, I, I, that's always been a big thing to me whenever I've gone to the land and, in Jerusalem, you know, you can walk anywhere, anytime, and really, there's there's nothing to fear. Um, I want to shift the gears again a little bit, and let, and so we've got I don't know, 15 minutes or so to talk about you know what's happening with ministry in Israel, yeah. and specifically, you know, talking about what's going on with the Messianic Jewish world over there. Um, you know, is it is it still really difficult for people that are Messianic Jews? Uh, now I know uh, one, there's one political party that if they get in power is going to be problematic. They're going to shut down everything. <laughs> Probably yeah. call anyone who's a Messianic, especially from another country, you know, out of the country. So if you could just well, this, share a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, this is one of the things that disturbed me because I've been such a high BB fan. But because Netanyahu is needing to cobble together a government, he oftentimes puts the ultra-Orthodox in his uh, series of parties to be able to get the seats he needs. And, you know, they're a very tiny minority here, but they have a huge influence. Uh, they have the influence over right now. One of their ministers is a um, minister in over uh, immigration. And it's Arya Derry, who's a convicted criminal, who spent time in prison. But anyway, this particular... Uh, he's ultra-Orthodox. He absolutely hates Jewish believers, you know, and he supports groups like, there's a group called Yad Lachim, and they're one of the anti-missionary groups that particularly goes out after uh, Jewish believers. You know, anyone that has a Messianic congregation here, they will stand outside and picket and yell and scream, cause commotion and all of that kind of thing. But anyway, that's one of the parties that, that was kind of a shock to everyone they heard. I, I, the name is escaping me right now. It's a relatively new party. But it's an ultra-Orthodox party um, that uh, is really at the far extreme, far, far extreme. 
And Netanyahu has agreed that in his coalition government, they would have a part. And I really felt my spirit, Dina, that Netanyahu would put like a nail in the stake of his potential re-election, that God was not pleased. But um, I don't know when that eventual coalition will happen, if they will be in it. But once he made the agreement with that, I thought of that, you know, Rolling Stones song, Sympathy for the Devil, you know. I mean, this is a party that would do everything they could to destroy. This party would like to see Christians leave the land. You know, these are just even Gentile Christians, you know, who are here in ministry opportunities and churches, a very uh, not good thing. But anyway, very quickly, what's going on, the mood here, I think, is that, of course, this, this elections is a thing everyone needs to be praying for. Um, but I think the sense is that we are on the verge of revival, just like we're all feeling everywhere, that revival will break out. And so the, the words that I'm hearing, I belong to a messianic congregation here called um, Ahavat Yeshua, which means the love of Yeshua. And this is a Hebrew-speaking only, it was the first Hebrew-speaking only congregation, uh, meaning I have a headset because I'm not fluent yet, but they limit that. For a long time, there were no headsets. I used to have people help, help translate for me because I'm not totally fluent. But anyway, they're a very alive congregation. And um, the leader, one of the leaders is uh, another one that came out of uh, Maryland. And uh, he has a ministry uh, here, uh, a ministry here, oh gosh, okay. Revive Israel, Asher and Trader to name a lot of people know, um, and uh, he has a very big work here as well with that ministry. But anyway, the thing that he keeps saying is there's a word here is there is going to be revival, but there's also going to be restoration. People say, like tikkun olam, you know that term, Dina, from yeah. your studies. The whole world, then, that's a very Jewish concept about the restoration of the world. Of course, you go about that in your books about the garden. You know, that's all about restoration. But this is what, you know, we're, we're praying and hoping for here. This is what we're seeing is going to happen. And so the prayer and the hope here is that we will see that revival. Um, there's, when you're here, I have to say, for believers who come and they're not on a tour like I live here, you could every night be involved every evening in a different prayer group somewhere. There is so much going on. I feel like, you know, people who I don't do cruises, but I know on cruises it's like a smorgasbord. You know, you have food, everything's included, all the entertainment, it's all in one place. Well, think about Jerusalem as a spiritual smorgasbord in that way in terms of, you know, Messianic Jewish and Christian. Every night you could be going to a different prayer tower for service, a different, you know, glory of Zion that Chuck Pierce started a whole work here. There's evangelicals from the states who have various works here. There's the Messianic Jewish congregations. There's prayer towers. There's, there's something happening 24-7. So what you need to do and what I find myself doing is I really pray and I ask the Holy Spirit to focus me in on what he has for me here, what I am to do for this season. Because there's a lot going on and you really need to focus your energies where the Lord wants you to be focused. And one of the things I wanted to add to that is I want to say to people, since we're getting close to the end, and I want people to have something to hang on to about prayer. You know, a lot of people, when they talk about Israel, they, they always 
quote Psalm 122.6, you know, pray for the peace of Jerusalem, you know, um, may those who love you prosper. That's a very popular psalm about praying for Israel. And then, of course, the one that's on everybody's kind of rubber hand bracelet, you know, that everyone gets when they come to Israel. If I forget thee, O Jerusalem, may my right hand forget her cunning, you know, may my tongue cleave to the roof of my mouth. Now, those are both beautiful prayers, but I'll tell you the prayer that you should be praying as believers, and especially as believers with Jewish roots, Messianic Jewish and Gentile believers. You should be praying Isaiah 62.1, which says, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not keep still. Until her righteousness shines like a bright light, her salvation, hallelujah, her Yeshua. Amen. Amen. That's what we need to be praying. You know, we need to be praying for righteousness and restoration and salvation. That is the prayer that people should be praying as Isaiah 62.1. Amen. Well, I, I think it's interesting that this, uh, the prayer and the ministry and just that sense of revival and restoration is, has really intensified over there because we know full well the relationship between the United States and Israel is an unbreakable bond. And so it may be, you know, we're, and I'm not going to go on to a political rant here, although I could, but what's going on in the U.S. and as we're watching, you know, socialism, communism sort of taking off in every corner, I think those prayers that are going on in, in Jerusalem and Israel are for us as well because we're, we're at a tipping point in this country where we could just completely implode from within and there is a sense that believers, I mean, people are starting to recognize, albeit kind of late, that, you know, we're at the breaking point. And, and, you know, similar cultural things are going on in Israel with, you know, abortion and the gender stuff. And I don't really want to talk about that stuff. Cause, but I do think, go ahead. That's on the Democrats and, you know, AOC and, you know, the whole, the whole oh. group of them. All Ilan, also, you yeah. know, talk about anti-Semitism, you know, Rashid Tlaib. Uh, this is not an accident, you know, that the yeah. radical Muslim, you know, it, it, it's really, a, it, it's a well thought out and planned thing. One thing, I want to say one other thing quickly on that. Um, just, I went with a group of journalists uh, just this past week on International Women's Day to Haifa, and we had a whole program where we went to a place called Beit HaGethan, which is a cultural center where Arabs and Jewish women together and men do exchanges in art and other ways to communicate. It's a cultural center. It has a very interesting DNA in terms of Jews and Arabs living side by side uh, in coexistence in a way that you don't see much in other areas of the city. But the significant thing I want to say, we went there on Women's Day. I, here I was with a bunch of journalists most of them Jewish and most of them um, secular, you know, maybe yeah. a few religious, but mostly journalists, you know, and, and here's Jane, you know, <laughs> part of the game. Yeah. Anyway, so, and we had a private meeting with the newly elected, she's only been in power now three months, newly elected mayor of Haifa. And she's the first major woman, you know, major, uh, first woman mayor of a major city in Israel. The man that she ousted from power, think about this, had been mayor since 2003. Can you really? imagine? Wow. To get 
And when I talked to her, I said, tell me about your campaigning. And one of the things she said is, you know, I never played the woman card. You know, people tried to corner her. You know, the journalist said, oh, are you a feminist? And she was very careful how she answered that. She said, I think that women are beautiful and strong and have much to give. So do men. You know, it's yeah. like, she used to be in a box. But she told me that it was five years of canvassing, of networking, of meeting different people, of, you know, Dina, I know you're just getting it started in the grassroots of movements in, in New Mexico around abortion and gun rights, you know. You have to realize you build coalitions, you build things, you, we talked about PACs and different things. You build that as you go along, but she spent five years, you know, in background before yeah. she was to her position as mayor. And um, I felt like once I met her and I really hit it off, I mean, I just really felt a connection with her that I could be a bridge for her through the Messianic Jewish community here. This is how God is doing things. It's very, very... Well, it's interesting you say that. I've had numerous emails from people because they, you know, I posted on purpose. You know, I'm, I'm getting active. This is what I'm doing. I'm sharing my journey. And they've asked me, you know, I don't know what to do. What should I do? And I always answer this, this the same way, you know, work within your community and just start reaching out, networking and talking and asking, you know, your commissioners and your town council and your mayor and who, who, whoever else at the very basic level, the precinct level, how can you help? What can you do? And, you know, I think this is a great message that, it, you know, it took her five years to build up the, those grassroots relationships and to build a foundation to where she was effective. And we all need to do that. And I, I totally agree with you. Ken, Ken. One of the things I wanted to say with that is we, don't, we have to understand that we are kingdom believers. And what we're here for is to expand the kingdom of God. Amen, that sister, is you're talking my language. <laughs> that is our role. We are extenders of the kingdom of God. So everyone says, oh, well, I don't have any influence. You know, it's only influential people. Everybody has a sphere of influence. I have influence over my family. I have influence over my neighbors. I have influence around my coworkers. I have a sphere of influence. And God has called me in that sphere to influence those around me, to bring the holy Ruach HaKodesh into the light and shine my light where I am. For Christians, you know, we've talked about the sleeping giant of the church has got to wake up. We're the ones that let them take prayer out of school. We're the ones that let them take the Ten Commandments from this, that, and the other. We're the ones that let the LGBT come in and put their agendas in our schools. We're the ones that Planned Parenthood go wild with funding and, and abortions. We just have to stop and say our sphere of influence, every single person has responsibility. We can't be pew sitters. That's the Christians from 40 years ago. We're not pew sitters. The church is the living stones. We're not a building. We need to get over ourselves, and we need to get on with the program that God's called us to. Everybody has a divine call, a divine purpose, and you are a big part of, you know, we're the body, the hand can't move without the fingers and the arms and the elbow. We all need to be doing something. Amen, sister. Like I said, you are talking my language. 
I mean, I've been trying to shout this from the mountaintops, and so it's great to hear of you know an example of someone you know. Granted, she you know became mayor, but what it took to get there. And I've always said you know these the spheres of influence are like concentric circles that meet and network yeah. with one another. And so again. I mean, this is how the other side has been able to be uh, successful, and so you know we're we're way past time. Um, I, yeah. So we just have a couple of minutes left here. Uh, I'm really want, I'm ex uh, what? Okay. Go ahead. Okay. Um, this is, I, I wanted to put a plug in for my good friend Paul Wilbur while I'm here. Um, okay. The well, I just I, Dina and I you just and I just talked about this two nights ago. Um, I was uh, up at. Uh, uh, my congregation and Paul Wilbur is in town, uh, has some meetings and other things he has to do, but he gave a worship conference just the other night and it was phenomenal. I hadn't seen him in a few years, but we're close. We're, we connect every time we see each other and it was so exciting to see him. But he, when he does a, con a worship a concert, it's really, he stands there and waits till the Holy Spirit tells him what to do. And he had a whole list of so songs he thought were right and when he felt after the first few minutes what was going on, he shifted everything to a different, you know, a different set of yeah. songs. And it was powerful, very, very powerful. But one of the things that he did when he was here for Sukkot last year around September, he recorded live a song, a, a set of songs under a new CD called Roar from Zion. So if your listeners remember, it's called Roar from Zion. It's going to be released in April of this year. Okay. Um, so you can go to wilburministries.com um, and find that. You can pre-order. But it's all these songs were recorded in Jerusalem. And if you want to hear the sound and the heartbeat of what's happening here, it's the roar from Zion. You will okay. want to hear his. Very nice. Well, I just I want to encourage our listeners that to, you know, I know everyone's kind of in their little world. Some of you may never get to Israel. But the reality is there's, there is something going on over there, and I believe there's something going on over here, you know, perhaps the remnant, but these nations so interconnected, and this, this prayer and this movement that's crying and calling out to God uh, to move in a sovereign way across both these lands and to raise up leaders and people that will inspire. And uh, so I, I think be encouraged. I know the, the things around us just – there's some days I just want to go hide in a hole. But uh, yeah. be encouraged because you are part of a great army that's being yeah. raised up. And there's this, again, there's this relationship between these two nations. And so I hope all of you in listening to this broadcast, uh, you know, Jane has really brought home what's, what's going on over there. You get the heartbeat uh, and, and you just you know, begin to seek the Lord and pray and find your place to serve. And uh, I just want to really thank you, Jane, because, you know, you're there and you, you, you got the feel. You spent a lot of time there. And uh, any just closing thoughts that you want to share? Um, just, you know, what they say at the end of reading the parasha, you know, chazak, chazak, and chazak, you know, courage, courage, be of courage. Remember that whenever anyone came in contact with the Spirit of the Lord in the form of an angel, the first thing they felt was fear. And the angel would always say, fear not. And I think that is the word I want to leave with people. Step out there and fear not. Amen. You know, the Lord 
with you. Um, and there is a great work to be done in both places, as Dina has said. And just step into your prayer closet. Don't you never forget to pray for Jerusalem because Jerusalem, uh, Israel, Jerusalem is the cutting point for all of all of Israel. But pray for this nation because it's so intertwined with God's end time plans, and we can't go into all of that. But it's it's key, you know, it's very key. And many of us know that when when the entire Jewish nation turns around and again says, you know, when Jesus looked out and wept over this city and, you know, spoke about the leadership here and said that you have denied me and I will not return until you say, Baruch Habat Hashem Adonai, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's what we want to hear on the tongues of the people here. Yeshua is coming back to a Jewish Jerusalem. Amen. And that's why it will be in these hands. And there will be that cry from people's hearts. Hallelujah. Amen. Well, that's a great word, and uh, yeah, I think it's a great broadcast. And uh, I just, uh, I just want to thank you all for listening. Um, this is Dr. Dina Dye returning to Eden, and uh, you know, email me if you're feeling a little discouraged or you just want. As I said, I've received a lot of emails from people like, "What do I do?" And uh, so I'll try to encourage you in that way. So. Thanks again for joining me. Thanks again, Jane. I will be talking to you very soon. And who doesn't know when I will be over there. And the two of us will take Jerusalem by storm. <laughs> we have to be together sometime. We have to yep. be here at the same time. Absolutely. All right. Thanks so again, can... everybody. Oh, go ahead. It's nighttime, so I get to say Lila Tov. Bye, Lila Tov. Boker Tov. And uh, we'll see you all soon. Thanks for joining me. Shalom. <laughs>